invite you now to please take your bulletin insert. As we're going through some of the Proverbs this summer, uh, we are doing a bit of a topical study, and we do have one primary text today. Uh, you can find that in the bulletin insert right about right in the middle. Uh, Proverbs 19, verse 11 tells us, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. But we've compiled, I've compiled uh, some other Proverbs having to do with God's wisdom for our anger today. And uh, we will see Proverbs 19, but in the context of some of these other ones, as we seek God's wisdom for dealing with our own anger and the anger that we find directed toward us. So please join me now before we read uh, these Proverbs together. Please join me in prayer, seeking God's blessing upon his wisdom for us. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we pray that as we come to your word, you would use it to still our hearts before you. Pray that you would banish any distracting thoughts that we have brought in with us, that we would focus upon your word, that you would make us uh, hearers of it and not hearers only, but doers of it. O Lord, we thank you that all of your wrath for your elect is laid upon your son. And so help us to see uh, the way you overlook our offenses, the way your glory, O Lord, makes you slow to anger. And so make us like you as your children. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Here now God's wisdom for anger is found in Proverbs 12, 15, 19, 20, and 29. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. A man of great wrath will pay the penalty, for if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. Bloodthirsty men hate the one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. In August of 2007, uh, Justin Boudin was arrested following an outburst in St. Paul, Minnesota. Mr. Boudin was a student, and he was on his way to class. He was waiting at the bus stop for his bus to come, and he got into an argument with an older woman uh, in her 60s who was there at the bus stop, and he began shouting uh, at this woman, and when she pulled out her cell phone to call the police, he attacked her. There was a man also at the bus stop, and he tried to intervene, and uh, Justin uh, took uh, the binder of course materials that he had in his hands and began beating the man with it. Then, fearing that the police were indeed on their way, he dropped uh, his belongings, his binder included, and he fled the scene, but the police were able to track him down using the papers inside the binder. Those papers included his name, and they also included his homework assignments for the anger management course that he was attending. 
I assure you it actually happened, even though it seems so ironic that we uh, question, really? Uh, yes, uh, the AP uh, reported on that in 2008. Uh, it actually happened. It's so ironic, but there's also something so commonplace about it that you realize, I think, in the right circumstances, uh, that could have been you. Venting your anger on somebody you don't even know. Flying off the handle, uh, going off on, on whoever is right next to you, blind to the foolishness of your own rage. That's the way anger works. When it takes hold, it blinds us. It makes us awfully forgetful. It has the effect of making us forget everything but the offense that we're so angry about at the moment. It makes us forget our manners. It makes us forget our relationships. It makes us forget our Christian witness. It makes us forget our dignity, and we begin to act like the proverbial fool. And you can watch it happen, and somebody else, and you can come away and say, wow, that guy's got a problem. And then you find yourself doing and saying the exact same things in another situation. Now, Jerry Bridges lists uh, anger among our respectable sins, he calls them. Sins like greed, worldliness, gossip, anxiety, sins that are so prevalent that we tend to make excuses for them until they get really big and really out of hand, and then we think we ought to do something about them. Somebody needs to go to anger management courses, but those little outbursts that you have, no, 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 we'll, we'll just, uh, I, was, I was tired, I was hangry, I, I, I was, something was happening that day, whatever it was, and we... We make excuses, but anger is a real problem, even if it's not the kind of thing that dominates your life. Robert Jones writes that anger is a universal problem. He says it's prevalent in every culture. It's experienced by every generation. No one is isolated from its presence or immune to its poison. It permeates each person, and it spoils our most intimate relationships. And he's right. Anger is everywhere around us. Sometimes it feels like anger is everywhere inside of us, and sometimes it explodes, sometimes it simmers under the surface, but no matter how it shows up, it always makes us forget God's wisdom. It makes us act like the fools that sin has twisted us into. Today, we want to hear some of God's wisdom for our anger. To do that, we're going to listen to three truths about anger from the Proverbs. First, we're going to consider... Uh, how anger is uh, powerfully destructive. Second, that anger is uh, uniquely relational. And finally, that it is essentially theological, that it is destructive, that it is relational, and it is theological. We begin at the beginning that anger is powerfully destructive. We find this most clearly uh, toward the end of the insert that you've got there in chapter 29, uh, beginning in verse 8. It tells us, scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. Well, here's a picture of anger run amok. It's, it's anger that has moved from an individual to a society, and anger feeds from one person to another person to another person until it infects the entire culture of the people, and before you know it, it has consumed everything around it. That's the picture of anger in the Proverbs. It is like the Lord himself, a consuming fire. It's like the great Chicago fire of 1871 that in the matter of two days destroyed three square miles uh, of that city. And it all started, people dispute how it started, but it all started in one family barn. Some say a cow kicked over an oil lamp. Uh, who knows? But it started there. They know that it happened in O'Leary's barn, and in two days it had consumed three miles of Chicago. And you see that happening sometimes. There is this 
collective outrage that we see. It starts in the media, maybe. Whatever media, you, you know, social media, contemporary media, traditional media, whatever it is, it starts, it starts somewhere and the word begins to spread and there is this outrage that winds up like a turbine engine and the, and the more it feeds, the faster it spins and, and the more it can feed. And so it's just this cycle that keeps going uh, and, and it begins over some injustice, some indecency, and before you know it, it has caught everything on fire. Next thing you know, you're watching the video feed from the helicopter. And there is rioting and there is looting in the streets and cars are being overturned and people are being assaulted and finally the reporters are able to speak to the rioters and they say, what is this all about? And they say, we're angry. That's why we're doing this. Anger is powerfully destructive and you watch it happen literally and figuratively. Scoffers set a city aflame. The same principle in the Proverbs is, is applied on a smaller scale as well. Take a look at Proverbs 19, verse 19. It tells us that a man of great wrath will pay the penalty. Now, if you were to translate, translate that literally, it would tell you the man of great heat. That's how Proverbs talks about anger and wrath. He's a hothead. He's a man with a high temper, a quick temper. He's the man of great wrath. And he's always on the verge of an explosion. His children walk into the room and they sort of tiptoe around him because they know one wrong step and boom, there goes dad. He's a man of great wrath. He's a man of great heat. You see the same thing in Proverbs 15. Here's our hothead again. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Here he is stirring things up. This isn't churning butter in some dish. This is, uh, think of stirring up uh, the campfire before you add some more fuel. You knock off the, the dying ashes. You bring the embers and the coals into view so you can blow on them and make them grow red hot so that, that you can add more and you can stoke the fire a little bit more. Here's our hot-tempered man, and he is stirring up strife. This is the prevailing picture of anger in the Proverbs. It is destructive. It is a fire that consumes everything it touches. It's a devastating impulse that has the power to end your relationships and poison your church and burn your family to the ground. Now, we have our objections to this sort of thing, right? And I know what they are. I use, I use them, and you use them. And we say, well, there is such a thing as righteous anger, you know. There's a good kind of anger, isn't it? Uh, doesn't it tell us in the Scriptures, Psalm 11, even God is angry. That God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. And so we say anger is not always evil. Romans tells us the wrath of God, the anger of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And we say it's a good thing, and, and rightly do we say it's a good thing that the Lord should be angry. It is a declaration of who He is and His justice and His holiness and His righteousness and His, His otherness from us, that He's always angry for the right reasons when the Lord is angry. It's a good thing that He's indignant against sin and blasphemy. And there is such a thing as righteous anger. Anger. There are things in the world that are worth getting angry over. There are 125,000 babies who are aborted worldwide every day. 3,000 in the United States alone. World Health Organization says between 20 to 22 million every year worldwide. If you're not angry about that, you're not paying attention. There are some things that are worth being angry about. Televangelists in $6,000 suits who are emptying the bank accounts of gullible widows. That's worth being angry about. Parents, if somebody was abusing your child, 
and you weren't angry enough to do everything you could to stop that abuse, we would think there's something wrong. There are good things to be angry about. There's such a thing as righteous anger. And we could go on a rabbit trail, and we could try to delineate between righteous and unrighteous anger, and we could try to parse out the difference between those two. But let's be honest with ourselves. We already know the difference. And quite frankly, we already know that the vast majority of the anger that we experience every day is the run-of-the-mill sinful kind of anger. The unrighteous anger that crops up because our glory has been maligned. Not because God's name has been blasphemed, not because others are being harmed, because we've been inconvenienced. That's what we get angry about most of the time. And that's what the Proverbs are talking about. They're talking about that internal dialogue of slander. Because somebody has criticized the project that you're working on. They're talking about the bitterness that you like to nurse because somebody else has been recognized and somebody else has been chosen. And don't you deserve the spotlight for once in your life? The Proverbs are talking about the outburst that happens when you are interrupted one more time by that same person for that same inane reason. And can they give you 15 minutes of silence? The Proverbs are talking about that tirade that you have on the side of the road because you were trying to get somewhere and it is pouring down rain and the person in front of you suddenly stops and you slam on your brakes but you still hit them anyway and now you're sitting there waiting for the cops to show up and can you believe somebody gave them a license in the first place? This is what Proverbs is talking about and this is the vast majority of the anger that overtakes us in our uh, everyday life. And let me ask you, in those, in those moments of anger, what is your anger doing? Is your anger quietly, logically at least, maybe not quietly, but logically, trying to build relationships? Is your anger looking for inventive to solutions to the, to the situations the Lord has put uh, in your path? Or is your anger stomping out to the tool shed to grab the sledgehammer and to smash it all to pieces? That's what our anger does. It's destructive. It wants to simply get rid of what is in front of us, and I think that's part of the foolishness of our anger. It's not just that our anger is rooted in pride, not just that it's, that it's selfishness, not just that it makes other people the target for our frustrations. It's that our anger is poor stewardship. The Lord gives us resources, and they come in the form of opportunities and circumstances and obstacles to overcome as we wait upon Him, as we look to Him. The Lord puts these things in our lives, and they're resources where we can grow. You can grow in your faith with the Lord. You can grow in your relationship with your spouse. You can grow in shepherding your children. Here's an opportunity. Here's a resource the Lord has laid into your lap and what do we do when anger takes hold? We squander those resources. We take those opportunities the Lord has given us and we pull out that little lighter called self-pity and we hold it to the bottom until it all catches flame. Why? Because we simply like to stand back and watch it turn to ash. It's catharsis. Oh, it feels so good. Just to watch everything that is angering you just fall to pieces. That child that's interrupted you one more time to watch them sort of go away sad and know that they're not going to be back to, to interrupt now. And it is a strange sort of thing, but there's a, there's a satisfaction in that. What a shame. 
We do it for the sake of holding a grudge because we'd rather let things fly once in a while than submit ourselves to God's wisdom. Dear friends, beware of the destructive power of anger. Beware the temptation to stir up the coals of conflict just because you like to watch them glow. Beware of the destructive power of your anger. Secondly, we need to know that anger is uniquely relational. It is powerfully destructive. It is uniquely relational. Not all moments of anger, of course, are relational. There's always that guy out there by himself uh, on the golf course throwing his clubs for whatever reason. Nobody else is around. Not everything is relational, but the vast majority of our moments of anger are. It's simply a fact of living in proximity with other human beings. You put more than one person into a situation, and all of a sudden you have more than one set of uh, values, more than one schedule, more than one opinion. You multiply the people, you multiply those people's interactions with one another, and you open up the opportunity for all sorts of anger. The reality is, when you have more than one person involved, you have more than one sinner involved. And so we may have a different uh, set of values, a different opinion, a different schedule, which may not be all that great, and our opinion and value and schedule is in conflict with the other person's opinions and values and schedules, and all of these things come to a head. We begin to take these conflicts personally. And so anger is a uniquely rena- relational expression of sinners in relationship with other sinners. This is perhaps the worst kind of anger. Because it's still just as destructive as all those other kinds of anger when you want to smash that printer at work or whatever uh, that object is that is in your way. It's still just as destructive, except now it's destruction aimed at another person. Jesus diagnosed this on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, he says, You've heard it said uh, that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What's so bad about relational anger, interpersonal anger for Jesus, is that it's murderous. It's desiring that person simply not to be there, not even to be in your way, just to be gone with. It's destructive. It's a scorched earth policy toward anybody who has crossed you. So we need to understand that very often our anger is a uniquely relational sin. And so that means that dealing well with anger also means dealing well with people. We can't get around it. We can't simply go out into the desert and be a hermit somewhere and cut ourselves off. When you, when you look to the Proverbs and ask, how do we deal with anger? Over and over it talks about dealing with people. And I think it shows us two different kinds of Uh, of wisdom we need to have with dealing with interpersonal anger. We need to deal well with anger that comes from other people, and we need to deal well with our own anger that's headed toward other people. We'll take those in step. Uh, Real biblical wisdom uh, deals with anger from other people. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. It says, A soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Here you have the same picture. It's that raging fire again. uh, And uh, it's the question of do you stir it up or do you turn it away? And what's the difference? What do you do when these flames are headed in your direction? We all have moments like that. 
you did something boneheaded. Maybe it was on purpose. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe, maybe it was all a misunderstanding. But somebody is coming, and, and they're going to give you a piece of their mind. They're going to vent at you. How do you deal with that? Well, Proverbs tells us a soft word, a gentle response. The sledgehammer is aimed at you. What do you do? Well, you catch it with the pillow. You, you try to, uh, to quiet the conflict. Rather than adding your emotion to their emotion, rather than adding your anger to their anger, and then we see that setting a city on fire sort of thing happening in your relationship, you, you want to squelch that. You put the wet blanket over the fire, and you, and you do that uh, with a soft word. It's, it's kind of like relational judo. You've seen those martial arts videos, right? And there's the attacker, and he's coming, and he's got the knife, and they're demonstrating how the judo master, well, he, doesn't, he doesn't counter with a roundhouse kick or something. It seems like he just sort of steps out of the way and he flips and the attacker just goes. And you don't know how it happened. It, it seemed like uh, the attacker attacked themselves rather than the judo master. And this is what it's talking about. This is a kind of relational redirection. You take all the momentum that's aimed at you in anger and, and with a soft word you turn it. It becomes almost a self-attack. Now that's easier said than done. There's an art uh, to this sort of redirection. And part of the art lies in the fact that, quite frankly, we don't want to answer with a soft word. Somebody's coming at me with a harsh word. They're going to get a harsh word or two in return, we think. I'm going to stand up for myself. If I, if I simply answer with a soft word, they're going to think that they can walk all over me and they can treat me that way anytime they want. And if I simply sort of roll over and give them a soft answer, well, that's what will happen. It'll be this self-perpetuating. I'll always be the recipient of their anger. But having a soft answer doesn't mean that you have to be a softie. Jesus modeled this for us. He was uh, in the court of Caiaphas, he had been bound. He was being falsely accused. He was innocent of all the charges they were bringing against him. And men were blaspheming him to his face. They brought in scoundrels and wicked men to say false things about him, to bring him up on, on false charges so that they could get rid of him. And Jesus knew exactly what they were doing. And he issued them a challenge. They wanted to know what Jesus had been teaching. And he said, I've always taught openly. Go ask the people who heard me what I said. And then John chapter 18, verse 22, says that when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. What if I, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? I don't know if you'd call that a soft answer. But it certainly wasn't a harsh rebuke. It certainly wasn't adding anger upon anger. It certainly wasn't spinning the situation out of control. Jesus' response was measured. It was truthful. It was not aimed at simply uh, making things worse. Jesus was like that judo master, and he took that, that angry slap, and he turned it around, and the one who looked like a fool in that situation is the guard who stood by. And that's what we must do as well. It might be that your character is called into question. Maybe in, even in a situation that would have repercussions for your job, for your career, your advancement, your honor is on the line. And nevertheless, we are called to be like our Savior. We're called to turn away wrath. We're called to deal wisely with anger that comes from 
other people. We're also called to deal wisely with anger toward other people. That brings us to our theme verse. Chapter 19, verse 11. Good sense makes a man slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. You know, so often the, uh, the angry world rushes to judge and condemn and to indulge in catharsis. So often when somebody has offended us, we want to get the upper hand. We want to be the aggressor to make sure that they don't take us for somebody who will just roll over at an offense. But the wise man doesn't do that. The wise woman doesn't do that. The wise person in God's wisdom is slow. It doesn't mean you're oblivious. It doesn't mean that people uh, offend you and, uh, and ostracize you and you go, oh, I, I, oh, I didn't know. It's not that you're ignorant, but it does mean that you ignore certain things purposefully. Here's how Matthew Henry says it. It is a man's glory to appear as if. I like that. It is a man's glory to appear as if he did not see the transgression. Or if he sees fit to notice it, it is his glory to forgive it. That's what's glorious. The word here for glory is, is beauty, really. Adornment. That which exalts the person who has it, that which sets them apart from others. And I think there's a certain irony here because as we've been discussing, very often we rush to anger when we feel like we need to exalt ourselves. Nobody else is going to do it. I'm being, uh, I'm being offended. I'm on the receiving end of an injustice here, and so I've got to exalt myself. We give into that pull of anger. We, we channel our anger at defending our glory when we've been wrong. And we think that it makes us look better because in that fleeting moment it makes us feel better. But the irony is that true glory is to overlook an offense, to forgive it, to, to intentionally say, I, I will not take this into account. And the reason that is glorious in a man or in a woman is that that is glorious in the Lord himself. True glory comes when God's people live in such a way that others can see some of God's character in them. Show me your glory, said Moses. I want to see it. I can, I can handle it. This is the moment that we've been waiting for. I need to know your glory. Show me your glory. I can handle it. And God says, you can't handle it, actually. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'll come and I'll tell you about it. You can't see it. I, I won't show it to you, but I will tell you about my glory. And so Exodus 34, if you were in Sunday school, you heard this already. Uh, thank you, Tim, for stealing my thunder. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. What is God's glory about? It's that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That is glory. It's the God who knows full well what it is to be indignant against sin. He is always righteously angry, indignant against blasphemy every day and sin and offense and rebellion. The God who feels indignation, who will by no means let the guilty go unpunished, and yet he is the same God who keeps covenant, steadfast love. He is the God who is slow to anger, and it says the glory of a man is that he's slow to anger. Do you see God's character in this person? 
glory of our Lord is that he was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. What does a glorious man or woman look like? They look like God. They look like God's character on display. They don't fly off the handle at every provocation. They don't don't rush to defend themselves. A glorious man is slow to anger. A glorious woman forgives transgression. They overlook offense. That's how wisdom deals with anger toward one another. When you want to indulge it, it overlooks the offense. Is it a decision of love? What does love do? Keeps no record of wrongs. Believes all things. Hopes all things. A man's glory, a woman's glory, is to act in love toward those around them. Isn't that what we've been called to? Because as the Father has first loved us, so also we must love one another. and Love even our enemies, by the way. That's a glorious thing. Well, that brings us to our closing point. We've seen that anger is powerfully destructive. We've seen that it is uniquely relational, but we won't know the reality of our anger. We certainly won't have any idea what to do with it until we understand that it is essentially theological. Anger is a theological problem. That means that it's not so much about how you feel and whether you internalize or externalize your anger. It's not so much about the words that come out of your mouth. It's not so much about the way your temper flares and your ears get hot and your face gets red and your teeth. It's not about finding the right coping mechanisms. It's not about redirecting your cathartic experience into a pillow instead of your partner. It's not about all of these things. It's about what you believe. Do you believe that there is a God who can be trusted with these circumstances, with these interactions, with these people who make you so angry you just want to shake? Is there a God you can go to who will hear you and who will know what you're struggling with? And do you trust his promises that he loves his children so much that he will always come and deliver them at just the right moment, even if his right moment isn't the right moment you were looking for? Even if it's not until way after the fact, it's a theological question. Is this what you believe about the Lord? So far, we've considered the danger of giving in to anger. We've talked about some of the practical ways for overcoming it. When other people come at you in anger, you want to respond with a soft word. When you're tempted toward anger at others, you need to forgive. You need to overlook an offense. But let me ask you, if you were to live in this world the way that so many other people live in this world, within the worldview of materialism. This is all there is. Nothing but sky above and earth beneath, and when you die, you're done. If that's all there is, why wouldn't you be angry when somebody offends you? At least in some some underlying sort of existential sense, why wouldn't there be that gnawing angst Uh, at at every moment, that life hasn't turned out the way that you want it to, if this is all there is, if this is the only shot you've got, if Darwin was right, it's dog-eat-dog, and the best man wins, and only the strong survive, why wouldn't you stand up for yourself? There's no reason not to. Maybe you could get to it through pragmatism. You learn by experience, you know, I feel better with a smile on my face, so I'm going to fight against that. My grandmother told me you can draw more flies with honey than you can with vinegar, so I'm going to I'm going to find some self-serving ways to deal with my anger. Is that what it's all about? 
if this is all there is, there's no reason not to be incredibly angry. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I spent quite a bit of time watching interviews and debates uh, of the late Christopher Hitchens. He was one of the so-called uh, new atheists. He's most famous for his book, uh, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Well, Hitchens died of esophageal cancer in 2011, but I, I've seen quite a bit uh, of his debates. I've seen some of his interviews, and from watching these, these videos, from reading some of his writings, uh, I have concluded two things about Christopher Hitchens. One, that that man was terribly intelligent. His tongue and his wit were so sharp. You could have shaved with them. I, I don't know where to go with that analogy. They were, they were razor sharp. He was very intelligent, terribly intelligent. He was widely read. He knew lots of information. He was terribly intelligent. But number two, the other thing that I learned about him, he was terribly angry. I've never met the man in person. And he doesn't represent everyone who is an unbeliever. And I don't know what his, uh, his demeanor was like when the camera was off, but at least the persona that he sold, the way that he got ahead in the world, was that he was a man who railed against God. He was just angry. He made his entire career off of outrage and stirring up the outrage of others. And within his system, why not? You see, Proverbs tells us, gives us the theological vantage point that we need to put our anger to bed. Proverbs 20, verse 22, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. He will deliver you. This is the perspective that we need to deal with our anger. It's the perspective of the gospel. It's a perspective that reminds us that there is a God who is the great deliverer of his people, even if it doesn't align with, with our timeline, even if it doesn't fit into where we think, well, maybe God should deliver me this way, and he's doing something different that you're not aware of, and those situations really are resources he's given to you to grow you and to discipline you and to make you more like himself in holiness. Maybe, and that's what the scriptures tell us, he is the great deliverer. And in order to prove that, he sent his son, and Christ came and he suffered. He suffered indignity. He suffered frustration. Things didn't work out the way he wanted them to sometimes. As a man, and we could get into the, the God-man distinction in the Trinity. We can have that debate later. But as a man living in the world, there was frustration because there's futility in the world, says Paul in Romans. And he walked into that. He entered that. And, and Jesus was offended. He was taken for a fool and he could have gotten angry. Times he did, but his, his anger was righteous. But what he did not do was he did not defend himself. Though he was God in the flesh, in the very form of God, he, he didn't defend himself. He didn't lash out in anger. He didn't say, you've uh, got to, uh, to serve me in some of these situations. He overlooked offenses. He responded with a soft word, like a lamb that was before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. He gave himself into the hands of those who hated him. Why did he do it? Because he trusted Proverbs 20, 22. Don't say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He will deliver you. Christ believed his Father. He, he loved the people that he had come to save, and he believed that God would deliver him at just the right time. Here's how Peter says it. 1 Peter chapter 2, 
verses 19 to 23. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, there's the theological vantage point, and it doesn't work without that. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what anger is about. It is an essentially theological problem. Do you entrust yourself to him who judges justly? you believe that Christ has come and will you walk in his way when he endured suffering in order to overlook your offenses, even the offense of your anger? This is the message for us today. Christ has come to show us what it is to deal with anger, but far better than showing us how to deal with anger. He has come to actually deal with the sin of our anger and to give us his Holy Spirit put our anger to death, to extinguish those flames that that threaten to to spring up in our hearts. Every time somebody just gets on the wrong side of us, what does it tell us in Galatians? We stopped just short of the reading today. There's that list of the fruits of the Spirit. Ever considered how many of those have to do with the correct response rather than anger? Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Self-control, at least half of them. What is the Holy Spirit doing in the lives of his people? He's putting that wet blanket over the anger, and he's saying, no, I've already dealt with this. I've already taken the offense. I've already dealt with the sin. I've already forgiven you. You can wait for the Lord. You can speak truth where you need to speak truth. You can protect those who need to be protected. You, You don't have to be a doormat, but... You don't have to be angry because the Lord has taken that anger in your stead. And he gives you his Holy Spirit to give you the fruits of his spirit. So dear friends, wait on the Lord. Don't repay evil for evil. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Please join me in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we thank you You are the one who came in the person of Jesus Christ, and you were the one who sent your Son to take upon himself all the anger of unrighteous men so that you would save your elect people. Children, you have chosen in love before the foundations of the world. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would deal with our anger as only you can. Show us the folly of it. Show us the sin of it. Show us the danger and the destruction of it. Show us how Christ has borne it for us and taken it away and forgiven us of it. And by your Spirit, help us to walk in his ways. Respond by overlooking an offense and to give the soft answer when we want to rage. Oh, Lord, we thank you and we pray that you would be at work in your people. Make us self-controlled. For the sake of your gospel, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.